Good evening, everyone. I'm Sophie Hackett. I'm the curator of photography here at the Art Gallery of Ontario, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to our uh, talk this evening. I first want to uh, acknowledge that the Art Gallery of Ontario operates on land that has been the site of human activity for over 15,000 years. This land is the territory of the Anishinaabe Nation, and it was also the territory of the Huron-Wendat, the Neutral, and the Seneca Nations. The Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant is an agreement between the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabe. Sorry, the Anishinaabe Three Fires Confederacy to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes. Toronto is also governed by a treaty between the Federal Government of Canada and the Mississaugas of the New Credit Anishinaabe Nation. Toronto has always been a trading center for First Nations. Tonight, so I welcome you all again to, join, to, uh, to this talk. I want to single out one particular special guest this evening, the Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, Her Honor, the Honorable Elizabeth Dowswell is here with us. Um, so, Your Honor, welcome. Thank you for listening. I also want to welcome those people who are joining us via live stream. Uh, there's a few people listening from home, from wherever you are. Hello out there. Thank you for being with us. What brings us together tonight is, of course, the Anthropocene Project. This is the latest collaboration between the uh, three extraordinary artists who call Toronto home. Of course, award-winning, they are award-winning uh, photographer Ed Bertinsky, who's been photographing our human impact on the planet uh, for more than 30 years. His remarkable works can be, have, have been shown and are in the collections of extraordinary uh, museums around the world, including the National Gallery of Canada, the Museum of Modern Art, the Guggenheim, uh, the Reina Sofia Museum in Madrid, and of course the Art Gallery of Ontario here, uh, right here. Uh, he has been recognized in, in many different ways, uh, including most recently in 2018 at Photo London as a Master of Photography. And he has been given the title of an Officer of the Order of Canada uh, in a, no a number of years ago. Jennifer Bashwal has directed and produced documentaries for over 20 years, and her films, of course, have also won multiple awards. Uh, features like Let It Come Down, The Life of Paul Bowles, The Holier It Gets, Act of God, and Payback. She... Sorry. Um, she co-directed... Uh, Sorry, she directed um, Manufactured Landscapes in 2007 and co-directed with, with Ed Bertinsky and, and Nick Depensier Watermark in 2013. Um, and she's been a director of the board of TIFF for many years and is a passionate ambassador for a Share Her Journey campaign, a five-year commitment to increasing participation skills and opportunities for women behind and in front of the camera. Nick Depensier is also a documentary director, um, producer, and director of photography. Other cre credits include also Let It Come Down, uh, the Holier It Gets, The True Meaning of Pictures, Hockey Nomad, Manufactured Landscapes, uh, and many others. Uh, he was admitted as a full member of the Canadian Society of Cinematographers and currently sits on the board of Hot Docs and Doc Toronto. Uh, together, Béchoual and Depensier continue their work uh, in documentary films, but also in video installation. Um, for instance, Ice Forms, which was part of an exhibition here at the AGO, The Idea of North. They also uh, recently completed Long Time Running, which was a feature documentary film on the Tragically Hips 2016 Cross Canada Tour. Uh, the, three the three artists, of course, first collaborated on Manufactured Landscapes in 2007 and then um, Watermark in 2013. 
Moderating the conversation this evening will be the AGO's Director of Public Programming, my great colleague, uh, Devyani Saltzman, who assumed the role earlier this year. She is, uh, in addition to this role, a writer, curator, and journalist with a deep interest in multidisciplinary programming at the intersection of art, ideas, and social justice. She holds a degree in anthropology and sociology from Oxford University. She's the author of a memoir, Shooting Water, and from 2014 to 2018 was the director of literary arts at the Banff Center. Her writing has appeared in the Globe and Mail, the National Post, the Atlantic, and Tehilka, India's weekly of arts and investigative journalism. So with that, please join me in welcoming the four to the stage uh, to hear more about the Anthropocene Project. Thank you. Hello and welcome. Very excited to have this opportunity. I am first going to work on the clicker. Let's see if this goes. Uh, um, I won't, we're going to do. We're going to have a bit of a broad conversation because this is an incredible multidisciplinary project that took five years to come to fruition. It covers film. It covers Ed's incredible stills. It includes a book and uh, AR immersive experiences. So just to begin, because I. Uh, these three artists have been on the road for a very intense fall. I'm not going to ask them what the Anthropocene means. I'm going to uh, just give us a little bit of background. The Anthropocene is, um, the suggestion is that the Anthropocene is the next epoch in human geologic time where our own human impact has outpaced, now you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, the, the, outpaced any other impact on the planet. It was proposed by the uh, group of scientists and is said to have started around 1950 um, and is connected to the idea of the great acceleration or the fact that our impact is outpacing anything else that is happening in the natural world. How was that for a, a slightly rough, okay, Nick is giving me the heads. Uh, what I wanted to basically ask is knowing that, I wanted to show a few images from Ed's work that, that illustrate it. This is um, terraforming in Germany, and I'm going to click to the next one, which, again, terraforming, and this is in Florida, phosphate. phosphate and um, Altacama, Chile, lithium mines, extraction, tetrafossils in China, technofossils in China. And in essence, the, the extent of this impact, I was curious to how, how did the project begin? How did you decide on these chapters? How did you actually kind of come to what you would choose to cover in both the film and in your images? Well, Ed and I were actually in Washington uh, supporting the release of Watermark and it was cherry blossom season, it was beautiful, we were walking around, nobody was in the theater. Like there were, you know, maybe 10 people. Do you remember that? Yeah. In a commercial theater, it was not the right place for that film. But anyway, we were walking saying, should we do another project together, what would it be? And we talked about Anthropocene a bit, and I said, what about trying to make that word part of the vernacular? Would, would we, is there a way of, of, of uh, increasing the understanding of what that word means? Um, and that's how it started. And Watermark was a very, uh, you know, big project, big subject, kind of, you know, moved like a river. The, and it was, we thought, are we really going to do that again? Is there, there's got to be a little more structure to this one. And so we started following the Anthropocene Working Group scientists who have been gathering evidence for 
10 years now, and their book uh, by Cambridge University Press is about to be pub published that documents all of their evidence, but their categories became our categories. And so we use their research as our jumping off point, as this sense of like the baton going from the scientist to the artist, and hopefully to activists and individuals. And Ed, I'd love to hear your thoughts, but of course you mentioned Watermark, but your collaboration goes back further. It started with Manufactured Landscapes in 2007, and am I right to say it started with kind of Ed, your project around Three Gorges and China and factories. How did you meet it before Manufactured Landscapes happened? Uh, well, I had been working in China from uh, about 2000 was the first trip I did to China, largely to go and see the Three Gorges Dam. And uh, um, those who know my work, I've always uh, pursued looking at large human systems. And this dam that they were building was, uh, by a factor of two, larger than anything. That the Ashwan Dam was 12,000 megawatts. This was going to be about 28,000 megawatts. So this is the largest project, 20 years continuous pouring of cement to make this gravity dam. So that was my original uh, interest to go there. And I had done about four trips. And along the ride, I had uh, one of my clients at Toronto ImageWorks um, was a you know, um, photographer, but he was trying to get into documentary film. And he said, hey, you know, I, I just saw your images you know, in Bangladesh. Can I come, in, can, can I come with you and, uh, and film? And I said, no, I put some conditions on that you can't slow me down. It can't cost me anything. If you can pay your own way, you're sure. It'd be great to have it recorded. So he came along. And he probably compiled about 100 hours worth of footage uh, on a Sony 150, PD 150. And then he cut something together, and it just felt more like a BBC documentary. And I just wasn't the thing that I was hoping for. And then. Not that those are bad. No, but it, it, it wasn't. It, it, not that those are bad, but it was just like I was hoping to be more of a, of a, of a kind of a artistic exploration of the subject. It was just wasn't where I, uh, I thought it would end up. And so then he kind of went around with the footage and tried to find a home and somebody else that can actually possibly do something with it. And across, uh, I guess, Nick and, and Jen's desk, Jen looked at the footage, I think liked the footage, but didn't have enough material there to make a film out of it. So, so then uh, we met and, and we talked for a while. Of, and I think, I remember talking about Herzog and, and Lessons of Darkness and how I thought that was an interesting model, very short and sparse on words let the images do the heavy lifting, you know, make it more poetic. And Jennifer was right there and thinking, yeah, that's, you know, I love that kind of uh, approach. And, and so then on my very last shoot before the China book was to be printed, uh, Peter Mettler, because at that time, uh, Nick couldn't, uh, they couldn't both be away from home. They had two young children. Was it two at that time? Well, yeah, two, yeah, two at the time. Uh, and so Peter Mettler became the, the DOP and, and Jennifer was a director and following me around to try and get the kinds of connective tissue that now I realize, having worked with these, what was missing uh, from what was in that previous footage. And then all of that previous footage ended up showing up as about 15 minutes of black and white, kind of almost archival pushback in time film. And then all the new uh, color work was then put through, which was then, then shot with 16 millimeter, right. uh, super 16. And, uh, and so that's, the very beginning, so it was you know Jennifer directing a film and extending the context of the subjects that I had um, actually you know was un uncovering and and working with for the last four years. And on, it's interesting because uh, despite that beginning, and I kind of want to ask you this: this film, it's the third in the trilogy. 
I don't know if you're ex planning on anything after this, as a, or you're taking a, a four. Um, but this, unlike manufactured landscapes, was developed together. And uh, there's a really great quote in Newswire that said it took three, you know, it takes three minds and three interwoven perspectives and five years to realize it. Nick, I wanted to actually ask you, and then we're going to watch the trailer. How did the development come to be together? Because in essence, I'm assuming you actually were developing the project in sync. Uh, we all started simultaneously for all of the philosophy of what the project would be and the almost year, an enormous amount of research and planning and just trying to dream it beforehand um, and had this amazing spark and a central organizing principle being the, the research of the, of the Anthropocene Working Group that we all thought in our, in our frenetic modern world where there's, the immediate is always bombarding you, that taking that, um, that planetary view, that, that big, big step back and looking at the human project, just like exhaling for a second. Um, the geologists have that really unique perspective that, I don't know, it, it, for me that's very rare to, to get that, but um, uh, kind of important, I think, given, given what's going on. Um, and then you can argue exactly the story that Ed just told. It, it was such a big topic and we really wanted to make it a planetary project to, to represent their research and to encompass the globe. We were, on, we were on six continents, every continent but Antarctica and 44 countries and locations. I mean, it, it was massive scale. Um, we couldn't have done that if we hadn't have worked together for 13 years and know each other really well and know our practices and our core competencies and our strengths because we needed all of that and all of our amazing teams who travel with us, uh, I think, to be able to, to execute the vision that we, that we wanted to. In light of that and lens-based art in its widest sense, let's quickly watch the trailer and I know, Jennifer, you'll say that it's slightly epic. Well, remember, trailers are to sell films, so you'll notice that it's got a very epic, epic feel. Let's, let's just go with it. There's like a backbeat that isn't usually there. Oh no. Now we've lost the trailer. Right. I'm like Can we, a bird can we try that again? Leave me, you old vampire. Just rest, rest assured that that's not a for a dance now. But I'm not afraid. Sometimes at big congresses you have like a 30 second dance break. Maybe we're that supposed to. That was the break, the, the momentary stress release. We're gonna tr t let us know when we can try the trailer again, and uh, yeah, new new definition of epic. A <laughs> new definition of epic. <laughs> well, we can. Okay, is it? Is it? That's better. <laughs> the Anthropocene is the time in the geological record when humans have moved the planet outside its natural limits. Humans go from being participants in the whole Earth to being a dominant feature. Dominating the oceans, the landscape, agriculture, animals. It could be a full-scale catastrophic change. 
we have not a way to get back. We live now in a different world. It is such a fundamental change in the way the Earth is behaving that we need to communicate that as powerfully as possible to everybody. Those of you that haven't seen it, you have. It's it's incredibly beautiful and uh, difficult. Before we go into a deep dive into the ethics of engagement and access, how you chose the locations you did, how you balance the human scale and human subjects with their impact on the planet, just a little more on the collaboration. So, if you were working for a year hand beforehand, Ed, were you shooting the stills at the same time as you were shooting the film, and were you making those choices in collaboration? Just because I'm used to, you know, when you go out and when you had done manufactured landscapes or, or other work, um, it would be interesting to see how you influenced each other in those choices. Well, in the past, even in, like, for sure in, in the China project, uh, that a lot of the subject was already determined, so that discussion wasn't, uh, what, what, you know, wasn't, you know, being had at that time. It was kind of, uh, you, know, you know, Peter and, and Jennifer and team kind of following the locations that were already established. When it, um, when it came to the, the Watermark project, I had already been at that project for a couple of years. I did some work uh, for an article for Nat Geo on water and, and, and looking at California. So I'd done almost a year of shooting for an article uh, for National Geographic, which actually was the first and the last time that I actually worked on an assignment with them. Um, and then uh, when I had some of that work um, already behind me, maybe halfway there, that's when I, uh, 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 I talked to Jennifer and Nick and they looked at it and they said, okay, well maybe, why don't we start a film now and then we determine some of the subjects, you know, after that and some are already predetermined, some we determined and some things that I shot as stills didn't, up in the didn't end up in the film and things in the film didn't end up in the, in, in the book and the stills, so that, that happened again in, in this project. But, but that was, and then on this one, we uh, very outset, you know, all decided that we're going to make all the decisions. And I think the really important check marks was first that it followed the scientific kind of rationale of what the Anthropocene Working Group was trying to do, and anthroturbation and technofossils and other things that we will hear about later. And, and having those categories, and then we had those categories in my office, I had a magnetic wall, and then we just looked at visual research and from other researchers and from past work that I might have done, but we didn't want to use that, we wanted to go to somewhere else. And it had to contain two, I think, really important ingredients. One was that, you know, it was, it, it was of scale, that it had something, you know, to say that, that was almost unprecedented in terms of the scale of our, our extraction or, or intervention uh, and so that was really important and the second one was that that visually both filmically we can approach it and we had an idea of how it might 
transfer into film and as a stills, how it might transfer as well into stills. And of course, we were using VR and AR uh, as well. So we were looking at all of these different mediums and trying to make sure that, that wherever we went, we can accommodate all those things. So that was really, I think, the, the, the main kind of criteria for the films. Um, in light of that, we're going to actually use a scene from the film to unpack some of the issues around the filmmaking and the photography. And Jennifer, can you set us up in what we are about to see? So this is a scene in, in Russia. Um, I will just say that, I mean, we say this every time, but the whole project was carbon offset. It's a small thing, but given our footprint, our ecological footprint in making this work, we're very aware of that. And we did go all over the place. Um, but this is in Russia in the Ural Mountains, and these are potash mines, uh, very difficult to shoot in. And our whole Russia I experiment, we were in Norilsk and then in the Ural Mountains. and. This is an exploration of agriculture. So the, all of the AWG categories, which maybe you haven't heard some of those words before, anthroturbation, human tunneling, technofossils are human-created materials such as um, you know, aluminum, concrete, plastic, uh, that, we, that persist in the biosphere. Um, and this is an example of, uh, of extraction and anthroturbation. And, and agriculture is such a huge terraformer of the planet that it is it, it, it occupied quite a big space in the film and this is just kind of an interesting scene because it, it kind of shows all of the different things that we were grappling with all the time and and uh, and one of the things which I'll just say now is that in in the, the certainly in the films and in the work that that the extrapolation from still photography um, and even at the stage of manufactured landscapes was a, 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 a real dialectic of scale and detail all the time. And, and in order for something to work in film and also just for the ethics of engagement, there is very much a kind of need to have the detail illuminate the whole, which happens maybe organically when you're looking at a photograph, but is not the scale view. And to tease out what those narratives are all the time in order to give meaning to the big picture um, is something that I am particularly always preoccupied with. And I'd like to ask you about the choice of those human subjects, um, and th these two are particularly humorous. So let's watch the clip. Agriculture and animal husbandry had transformed one third of the Earth's ice free land surface. Humans have pushed or surpassed correlatable boundaries for nitrogen, phosphate, and potash because of their use in fertilizer. Nitrogen and phosphorus levels in soil have doubled in the last century, representing the largest impact on the nitrogen cycle in 2.5 billion years.
Камера Rec Sound. Sound. Я. Рек? Я. Those, that's, our, that's our only laugh in the film. I'm afraid to say it, but it's true. Uh, so if you haven't seen it yet, you've got that one. And you're, before we go into the didactic of big and small and the choice of incredible characters and subjects, I wanted to first also ask Nick and Ed about the technology around that. And can you tell us where we were and the light availability in that situation and how you both did that? Uh, it's it's such a rarefied environment, and I mean, an amazing privilege to be able to visit these places. Um, uh, it's pitch black. You're uh, thousands of feet underground. You go down the cage with all the miners. and your first day, you're just bewildered, and the adrenaline is pumping, um, uh, and you're just really trying to orient yourself in this in this like Borgesian labyrinth. And of course they take us to the places where they're not working. We, we got to film once where they were actually working. Uh, there was a, a worker who was killed the day before we came. They almost weren't gonna let us in at all. Uh, but they take us to these abandoned drifts and they're almost infinite. Like they bifurcate and, and if you wander off, you could just keep wandering. Um, and yet, as you've seen, we chose this environment because they're intensely beautiful. The, the, the grinders expose these amazing colors, uh, these reds and blues in psychedelic patterns. Um, that, that's, that's why we went there. You know, we have potash mines in, in the prairies here. We could have gone, but they don't look like that. Um, and the Russian culture thing, too, uh, is, is incredible. Technically, it's almost impossible for me to shoot the video camera. And I was getting great stuff up in Norilsk, where we were in the in the in the um, you know biggest uh, colored metal mine and and processing plant in the world, all the big foundries. And Ed just wasn't wasn't kind of working. It was a little too generic, I think. And then Ed in in these mines was getting amazing photographs, um, and he can tell you how he did that. But I was. I was getting a little more and more depressed as excited I was uh, as I was to be there because I could only with the lights that I could bring, which are pretty amazing these days, but you can't get an idea of the vastness and the depth of the tunnels and, and even through those air drifts, uh, that was the most lights that I could ever have. So I'll tell you how we did one shot in there. Um, 
which was the move that goes from one drift through an air vent to another drift, and it's kind of like a floating dolly shot. We didn't have, you know, it's not Hollywood. We don't have all the gear and all the stuff to do that, and it would be pretty much impossible to light that anyway. But we um, were organized for this, and we took thousands and thousands of high-resolution stills, uh, still photographs, with a cross-polarized flash ring to eliminate all the spectral highlights, and uh, then, you know, computers exist and software exists now with a lot of work and massaging and tearing of hair uh, that actually will stitch those, just like you'll stitch a, you know, a panorama, but it'll stitch it in 3D. So you end up with a new kind of digital file, and this is the technology that, you know, Ed started pioneering and is, is represented in the augmented reality that we've all uh, contributed to in the, in the gallery um, uh, downstairs. But, um, in this case, it's not an object like Sudan or the Tusk Pile. It's the whole environment has been mapped when you stitch it together. Uh, and it's, it's exquisite detail. It's, it's photo real. You have to re-add the lights, but all of that information is there. Um, and then because of Hollywood and because of special effects and, and uh, big you know, blow em up movies and stuff, you can then take those files and animate through them. So that shot is actually a digitally rendered animation of a virtual camera moving through the space. But it's still documentary to me. We can have an argument if you want. It's still documentary even though in a way some people say we cheated. Um, all of that visual information is true. It's real. It's captured with, with cameras. Uh, it's just presented in a, in a way that takes a lot of processing, a lot of artifice to make it look real. Uh, so that was an interesting experiment. Certainly whenever I've experimented with that kind of animation before. I've always thought it looks so great in my head um, and, and it always ends up on the cutting room floor because it just doesn't fit, the, it, it doesn't fit the visual language somehow. But this time we actually, we were organized and, and working with good people and I, I, I think we got it right. That was one way we met the challenge of the almost infinite darkness uh, down there. Of shooting in a mine. And I, I'd like to now bring in the human side of the human epoch and the Anthropocene. Uh, you know this, you've had this happen before, you've had the critique of, of beauty, but I also know from Jennifer, beauty being a distraction from the gravity of the situation. The UN, um, obviously all of you know, a month ago, the UN um, inter Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Change announced that we actually have reduced um, the benchmark uh, in terms of degrees Celsius by which time our planet will be in even more crisis from two degrees Celsius to 1.5, and we have 12 to 30 years to really get on it before we're dealing with mass migration um, due to environment, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I'm, gonna just, I'm gonna say this, um, Jennifer and I talked about the fact that a, a creative meditation, whether it's through the images or the film, is also a very conscious strategy to give space to people to enter the difficulty of the subject. So one, how did you choose these subjects, including the two Russian men? How did you choose um, the locations you went to? And can you talk a little bit about actually the aestheticism being an invitation and a strategy to open the conversation? Sorry, we just went from technology to deep diving. Let's start with how did you choose the human subjects? Well, so in these, if you if you go to the films and there, it's also evident in the installations too. But there, there at the end of the credits of the film, there's a line that says this film was made without a traditional script, 
uh, shot and edited without a traditional script. And it's a very important thing for us to put in because um, it's a philosophy. It's a kind of existential attitude to documentary and to being in these places. And when you go all over the world for your work, um, it can be an incredibly arrogant act to kind of land somewhere and think, I'm going to shoot this place and get out of here. And, 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 and it, we really, um, you know, we've been making films for 25 years now, are always incredibly mindful of the way that we engage with context. So not only do we do a ton of research, um, first, but then when we get there, we sort of try to forget it. And it's like this philosophy of have a plan, but be ready to abandon that plan at any moment if reality does not conform to your idea of what it is supposed to do. And if you're trying to stick to your plan, you're not seeing what is happening around you, and you're not engaging with the context in a way that allows the truth of that place to emerge. So it is very much an existential attitude. What it means is that we shoot tons of footage and our, our, our ratios are incredibly high, like 300 to 1. And I'm kind of the, ed I'm the person who sits in the edit room for a year and sifts through all of that footage and tries to put it together with our incredible editor, Roland Schlimm, into something that resembles a story. And it has always been crucial to have this, that dialectic I talked about, about detail and scale, particular and universal. And the detail comes from an engagement where there is some kind of authentic exchange of vulnerability with either people or other species in this case, in this film. And so we're, I'm, I'm always looking for the, the way in to show the big picture. Um, and in, in Norilsk, it was these three women who, are, who worked, who were crane operators in the copper smelter. Um, and you'll see the, what happened after we talked to them. Uh, and then when Ed and Nick continued on to the Ural Mountains and I had to go home to get our daughter from camp, yeah, well, so we got arrested, basically, is what happened. Because we talked to these women and we, we weren't supposed to talk to anybody. Like, and they said, you've come in here under false pretenses and you're journalists and you're not artists and why... And, and so by the time they got to, to the Ural Mountains, we... They really, we can't, they couldn't talk to anybody or they were going to get in trouble again and they did continue to get in trouble. And so when I was editing that scene, there was no way into it because there was no moment um, that illuminated the whole or gave some kind of a, a, a way in, an empathetic moment. And that, that scene with the guys, that was Mike Reed, our uh, um, drone operator and assistant camera, and he was just shooting them. And nobody had translated that. And I said, why, 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 I want to know what those guys are saying. Like what, um, and so we sent it out for translation. It came back two weeks later. And I was so happy when we had that moment because I thought, that's it. That is the way in to this scene. That gives us a human moment in this very uh, surreal environment. Ed, in light of um, what we were talking about, one, I would love to know your work the human is in there um, in, in moments or in, in, in terms of machinery to, to give a sense of scale. What have you learned from each other in the process of kind of finding a human linchpin on the stills side? Well, what I've learned is that the stills function quite differently than film does. And, and you can have um, a more of an intimate moment sometimes in a big picture because, and I shoot I've always shot large format and always imagined my prints to be large because if you have a person that's, you know, a quarter, in, you know, like, like 
a quarter inch high and a full, full size print, you can still go in there and look at that and have a kind of understanding of the scale and unpack it. And then that may actually key you into the whole scale of the, of the mine or whatever. So ladders and you know, barrels and things that we know the size of were always key to, to the image. Um, but again, you don't, I mean, what I always uh, found, uh, you know, amazing, you know, with what happened after manufactured landscapes was that, you know, you know, the taking the still, and, and actually it was, in there, there was a combination of myself in there, but also stills, and then moving from the stills to the context of those stills. And it extends that, again, human kind of connection to the, that these places are where, you know, people work every day and eat their lunch and, 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 and this is their life. So, so I think it, that, that film allows that kind of um, touch, that human touch to, to be there where, where in terms of the still, you're, you're, you're kind of like left outside, it's, they're kind of quiet, but they leave you kind of looking at the landscape being able to move your body and have a body experience with the print and go in and out, but you don't really have the context of, of what's beyond the frame, what's happening you know, to these people's lives. And that's where I thought film beautifully uh, extends that. And, and also, but, but film, you know, I think over time, film also kind of, it's memory and how our minds work with film over time. We remember it differently than stills. That still image, I think, has a capacity to etch itself, you know, from that location more so than footage does. And, and, and so there is an interesting role uh, that I think, you know, uh, photography plays. Like, for instance, you know, I, I, I look back at the Vietnam War, which when I was a kid I grew up watching, and there was just as much on TV and, and video of, of, of the war and what was happening. But then there are these half a dozen stills, you know, the, the, the girl running from the napalm and, 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 you know, Eddie Black's shot of an assassination. And those, like, half a dozen images somehow also encapsulate that particular time. So stills have, have a different role, and, they, and they're both equally powerful, but in different ways. Do you have anything you want to add, Nick, to that? Yeah, I mean, they're fundamentally different media, and, and I've always thought your, your stills are so cinematic. They imply these narratives, and they, they draw you in, and, and that, you know, what art historians call staffage, I, I'm I'm always in the in China the people you know who are who are dismantling their own homes to make way for the reservoir the Three Gorges Dam I, I I follow those threads, but if you if you just stayed wide in film it would be boring as sin right um, and we're used to a different a different language and and we have the capacity to to move and juxtapose in in time and to as Jen says, toggle, you know, between wide and more particular. And so it's important, I think, that, that we do, because we can. I think it, it would be an omission if, if we didn't, or something purely formal. Um, uh, and I think that because it's in time as well, you can have that, that more direct empathy with, with a human subject. Um, which really deepens your experience and the, and the faces. I mean, that guy's square jaw uh, operating the machine down in the mine. To me, it's, it's like he's, in a way, he's out of one of those uh, iconic propaganda posters. And that's it. He's the worker. And, and you get his humanity there when he's doing that. 
You're halfway through, um, or just before halfway through the run at the National Gallery, and here you have been traveling, you've been in New York and San Francisco, you've been on the film circuit. When we're talking a little bit about emissions, I do want to ask, obviously, the Anthropocene in this project is our impact on the Earth, but I am curious about the results of our impact on the Earth back on ourselves. So when you talk about the Three Gorges and displacement because of migration, has there been anything that's come up around things that haven't been covered in the documentary or in the stills and voices that haven't rep been represented. I'm only kind of curious because of, um, for example, the Tiny House Warriors project and um, opposition to Kinder Morgan and tran the Trans Mountain, uh, indigenous perspectives on sustainability. There are things that are missing and I'm curious to see what the audience or public responses to that has been. Well, it's be, every time we show the film, somebody puts their hand up and says, why didn't you go to the tar sands? And then we say, well, Peter Mettler, our friend, made a beautiful film called Petropolis, Aerial Perspectives on the Tar Sands, which if you haven't seen, you should, that was uh, commissioned by Greenpeace. And it's just flying over. We didn't want to repeat him or repeat ourselves in that way. Um, but there are, there's always another voice. And remember, the scientists are the inspiration for this, and their work was the inspiration for this. Um, and so we really tried to find places that were iconic of that industry, iconic of extraction. Like Norilsk, we went there because it's the largest colored metal mine in the world. Um, but it also is the biggest producer of palladium, which is in all of our, probably the palladium from Norilsk is in all of our cell phones in this room, right? We need, our job in this work is to connect us to these places we're responsible for but would never normally see or connected to but would never normally have any reason to witness. And that witnessing is meant to open things up. If we had other perspectives, perspectives of dissent, perspective of, I mean, there's a lot of people who uh, argue with Anthropocene as a concept and say it should be called Capitalocene. And, and there's indigenous critique, there's feminist critique, you can, and it's, they're all crucially important. Um, they're all voices that are meant to swirl around from a work like this, um, at the, the show, I would say the show and the film, that is intended to destabilize you a little bit <laughs> so that it opens up the possibility of shifting consciousness and thinking about these things. Then it's time to listen to those voices afterwards, um, after that destabilizing consciousness opening moment. If you, if you put in too many of the voices, it becomes a different movie. And in the Jen's edit process, there's always a pendulum that swings where there's more debate. In fact, the trailer, I'm reminded, it's full of voices. It's false advertising. It was uh, Mongrel, our distributor, made us make it in May because they wanted it in theaters in the summer, but the film wasn't finished by any means, and all those voices got cut out because it just became too talky. And as soon as you lose the experiential nature that, of, of the watching the film and hopefully watching the video installations and certainly standing in front of photographic work, as soon as you lose that, then, then ontologically, I think it, it's failed and it becomes Discovery Channel or BBC um, again. <laughs> nothing wrong with those but but that's not our aspiration for this and 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 that's a different that's a more intellectual exercise rather than the the more visceral emotional response that we're hoping for. yeah and I would add as well that when um, like when manufactured landscapes when I first saw the cut and I, it was quite well long when I first saw the first cut and 
and I realized at that moment that this film isn't a traditional documentary. It's allowing the viewer to really experience things, which is how you experience art. You know, nobody's always telling you what, you what you're seeing when you're looking at a work of art, and you, your own mind has to complete that meaning. And, 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 and what I liked about uh, that approach that you know, uh, Jen and Nick and Peter were all taking, it's to try and have that same effect, but filmically. So you're experiencing it, and the music is really important, and I think you, know, you, you can't underestimate the music, because again, what you know, the, the team did there really well with Jennifer at, at the helm is that that music never, it's always in the emotional place of where the visuals are. It doesn't go beyond it and become bombastic or underplay it as well. It's just kind of in the right zone of where and what you should be feeling when you're, when you're looking at that. So, you know, I think, you know, and, and then, you know, moving through the, the different films and, and, and you know, uh, you know I, I think it's, it, it's, it's evolved and the stills kind of fell away. And then I found in the last film, it's actually, even though, like, in, in the second film, Watermark, we had stills like, of pivot irrigations fading into each other and then all of a sudden you're doing it but with the film camera now the stills are gone now the film camera's doing those discs and moving into that shot as well so it's been an evolution as well uh, and for me the the important thing for the viewer to have that experiential thing is that you know it allows of course there's a of people who believe, and, and, the, and the choir, let's call them, that believe that we as humans are causing this problem. But then there are those who are undecided, and there are those who are opposed because of you know, the politics or whatever say, no, that's not true, and that's just that side making it up. Or but we're interested in the fact that these films and the stills don't offend anybody, and we can open up the discourse to enter into a dialogue with those who may be on, on a either a non-believer or, or, or on the fence as to whether this is an issue or not. So that, you know, the stills and the film become, I think, very important inflection points for dialogue. And, and they're all like, almost like Rochard tests. So what did you see when you saw the film? Or what did you see in that picture? And, and your explanation of what you see often discloses more about you as a person, or you're an environmentalist, or you're into industry, or you're, or you're into art, and you can see them from a lot of those different perspectives. So it, what did you pick up on? What do you see, or, you know, and, and how did you um, take it in? Uh, let me just add something about that, because what you're, when you talk about the, 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 the uh, whatever, the, uh, you know, the progression from manufactured landscapes to this one, and, and it's true, Manufactured Landscapes was never meant to be an artist's portrait. It was always meant to try to extend the meaning of the photographs into a time-based medium. And how, how do you do that? that? That was my big struggle with that film. But Ed was very much a, he wasn't a subject as much as he was an author, but he was in it. And when he was taking a photograph and Peter would be standing beside him shooting the film, they were in parallel, right? And then in Watermark, we integrated more, and Ed was still sort of involved in that film because we had him, him making the book and, and the difficulty of trying to you know, condense this work, or how, how do you order this work? How do you make a film about water? How do you make a book about water? How do you do a photographic essay about water? That was a thread. But as he was more thinking about the film, being a co-director, he, he was engaging with that medium more. And in this one, it wouldn't make sense for him to be in it and a director of it. He was actually thinking about it. So when we were engaging, as you asked before, three doing all of these different lens-based work at the same time in these different locations, we were all talking about 
what together. And it's interesting because it was a progression, I think, in your understanding of film. Before we open for dialogue, we were talking a little bit before. The UN, in the report by the, by the committee, the number one thing that was recommended was public awareness followed by economic incentives. So in terms of public awareness, what is the greatest impact you would like to see out of this, Jennifer? And what have you already seen in the last three months of it being out in the world? Well, how, I mean, we sort of told, we talked about it, but how many people in this room know what Anthropocene means? Okay, so that's way bigger than when we used to do that. It was maybe there were three people in the room. Four so, so the idea of of the idea of kind of disseminating um, the understanding that humans as a species change the Earth's systems more than all natural processes combined. I think. That as an idea is a hard thing to get your head around. And I think most of us who live in urban centers in the global north, live in the city, we do our things in the city, then we take these forays into nature to go for a hike or go on a canoe trip, then we come back into the city, not realizing or even thinking about the fact that every single thing we do every day is, in, is connected to that, those landscapes um, and is taking from those landscapes. So if, if, if this idea can get us closer to understanding that, how, what, what the, the, you know, the, the scale of our impact. It then allows, it's that baton thing, scientist to art to activism and individual action. It allows um, uh, the, be the beginning of, of a movement towards change. And in terms of impact, I mean, here's an amazing image. Can you tell us a little bit about what this is just before we... Um, so this is, uh, we spent about um, four or five days uh, outside of Nairobi in Kenya uh, at um, a landfill site called Dandora. And all the plastic bottles and bags uh, would accumulate there. And there were you know, several thousand people who worked there on a daily basis. There was a, actually a film called Children of Dandora and, and it was just following these children's lives who were born on a pile of plastic and have lived their whole lives uh, in, that, in that landfill, you know, uh, and help, helping parents sort and go to school from there. And, you know, this is their childhood. And, but we spent quite a few days there and we had a drone, which was very difficult to get in because they were made illegal. We had two, so they confiscated one at the, as we came in, but we had a second one. And we were able to actually use the, the, that drone and. And then some of the footage is, is, is a film camera on those drones going over the landfill site as well. But this was, you know, about, I was spent about two days on this rooftop with Mike Reed, the, our drone operator. And we were, you know, do, doing drone shots and I was doing stills with, with, with the drone because I could put my Hasselblad with 100 megapixel on the drone. And altogether, it weighs almost 50 pounds either with film camera or stills camera. So it's quite a kit. Um, and, you know, and I was going out there, but after about a day and a half, I remember looking over and seeing something in the distance, and I had just acquired a longer lens. It was like a, a 150 lens on, on my Hasselblad, and I hadn't really used it very much, and, and I saw this thing in the distance, and I put a longer lens on, and I was able to kind of, and when you have a longer lens, it just brings the landscape right up. It just kind of flattens it up from this rooftop. So I spent, and I just had my, you know, I had it set up 
for quite a while waiting for light and waiting for something to happen. I probably took 15 or 20 of that scene with different moments uh, between the characters. And there's three dogs in that picture and, and uh, three people. So it was, again, this nice, and it was, it's always nice to find, for me as an artist, that, that more human moment. And, I, and it doesn't happen very often. But in this case, as in one still, it, it, it all beautifully came together. And, and also the, the uh, Dendora sequence within um, the film as well is a very, very powerful sequence uh, within the film. So it was one of those things where you're just sitting there for a long time and it occurs to you. It wasn't something that just happened immediately. Um, and, uh, and again, one of those pleasant, pleasant results. Can you ban plastic bags, by the way, like other countries, but they've just, was it in 2017, I think, that they uh, banned plastic bags across the whole country? Is there anything else in terms of impact before we open for questions? Nick. I was really happy that uh, when we were getting the show ready and, you know, you're, you're full of all the anxiety of will it all work and, and will people come? And, um, and uh, I had a bunch of AGO staff people come up and say thank you. I said, well, why? Well, the whole cafe downstairs has gone completely green. There's no more disposable. The, it's all healthier. It's all like, you know, uh, everything is closed loop. And I said, wow, even if the show's a disaster and nobody comes, <laughs> we've already done, like, it's already made its mark. And, and you know, we have, we have this thing where we often say, why is it so hard to do the right thing? Um, uh, uh, sorry, why is it so, yeah, hard to do the right thing? And it's, it's hopefully this conversation will make it easier to do the right thing. Um. And, and I would add to that as well that when Jennifer and I had that conversation in Washington, my, one of my first gut reactions was, oh my, I mean, it's, it's Anthropocene, it's not an easy word to, to say, it's not an easy word to remember, it's a complicated definition of it. I said, what, what if people don't think that that word has anything to do with them? It might actually be a detriment and then and I think it was Jennifer said, well, maybe it's our job as artists to evangelize the word. And, and then I went, okay, that's, that's a worthy thing to do, you know, as, a, as an artist to try and really bring this word forward. And so one of the things that I got really excited about was when the AGO decided that they're going to put Anthropocene on the side of streetcars. And so in the biggest city in Canada, the word is going up and down the street, you know, with an image uh, wrapped in, on, on a streetcar. And I thought... Well, I'm sure there's got to be more of a more Google searches on Anthropocene coming out of Toronto right now, you know, as to well, what is that and why is that word going up and down the street? So I was very excited that that again I said, okay, Jennifer and Nick, I think we did it. It's uh, it's it's a word that's getting out there, you know. In light of knowledge and awareness, do we have questions? Back at there. Yeah. There's a mic coming to you. So, are you familiar with Franz Lanting? Uh, yes. I, I, okay, so he did a TED talk that covered from the beginning of the universe until present time using photographic imagery. So using stromatolites, like where there were existing evidence of the passage of time as time changed and the impact on the earth. So those TED talks hit the University of Toronto and many other universities. So that was a mainstream impact methodology. So, you know, in light of non-egalitarianism rampant throughout our global society, how do you get this message across to the people who can make a difference, i.e. the young people, 
probably in the universities and the colleges. Well, so just first, we were just talking to Sophie before this, and there have been 5,000 students who have come through this show already, and 5,000 more will come through before the end of the exhibition, so that's 10,000. We've had tons of school groups already through the, uh, through the TIFF Bell Lightbox, where the film is still playing. And we also have an educational program that we're trying to fund right now that goes all the way from elementary through to grade 12. And all of the, uh, the other films and the other work, people have just on their own done curriculums around manufactured landscapes and watermark. And as soon as the, the theatrical release is over of the film, those go into universities all around the world and, and are used as teaching tools. Uh, so that happens for sure. But if we can get the Anthropocene curriculum um, off the ground, we, we just want to give all that stuff away for free and, and to give it away for free internationally and let people use those modules to create curriculum around human impact. So we are trying to do that. Um, I just had a question because, as um, many others here, I um, read the UN report and was very, very distressed by it and had a conversation with a friend that same day saying, um, it, my, in my view, that, um, you know, we as, as consumers have, in a way, have kind of contributed to this entire situation. And my friend said, no, no, it's, it's the, the corporations, the large corporations that have, quote-unquote, screwed us all, and, and we're just pawns in all of this. Um, there's nothing we can do, and I wanted to know what, what's your take on that, on the interconnectedness of that, and what we, um, as little people, can do versus what the larger organizations can do. Well, I think you know, uh, as we've often said, you know, the, the, uh, as individuals, uh, we have two very powerful, two very powerful tools. It's our vote and our wallet. Um, and, and to use them both effectively and, and, and to try to get, you know, the, the right politics and, and the right kind of, you know, purchasing. And we've often also said that, you know, that because of entrenched interests, you know, they're holding us to all kinds of, so, you know, the electric car should be more prominent. Uh, we've all moved to electric cars, but it should be more prominent. It makes a huge difference in terms of the, you know, every time a car comes off an assembly line today, it's, gonna, it's an asset that will have to live out its life. So it's going to continue producing CO2 for the next 10 to 15 years. Every, you know, so all of these you know, diesel trucks, everything that's coming off in, in, you know, created for fossil fuels will be a contributor to CO2. And so the sooner we start to convert to uh, more sustainable energy, you know, the, the, the better off the whole planet and the better hope we have to, to go into the future uh, and, and, and have hope. But, uh, you know, again, we always wanted to put forward that the Anthropocene doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a negative one, that, there, that there's, it's hopeless. But, but you know, the, the, dam the damage is being done, like, uh, you know, a thousand mini cuts at a time. And yes, some corporations are going in and holding regulation to a certain, uh, you know, standard that they want, that's, and they have their lobbyists in there trying to hold, again, uh, their industries afloat. And you can even see it in, you know, what's happening in the States and trying to bring back coal or making sure that oil. So, uh, so again, 
voting is important and, and understanding your politics is, is, is important because, you know, again, what's happening here in Canada and what, what the Liberal government's trying to do with, you know, putting a price on pollution as they want to, you know, communicate it, not a carbon tax, but polluting, the polluter pays. You pay and, and that money then makes that product more expensive, which then makes, you know, a product like an electric car more viable. So it might be more expensive for the car, but then it's much cheaper to run it. We found, all of us have found that I would never, ever go back to um, uh, an internal combustion vehicle after having experienced, you know, the, what the cost of running it and the kind of, it makes you feel good that you're doing the right thing. And like, again, you know, the narratives have to be controlled and sent out like somewhere along the line, wind turbines became a negative because there was, I'm sure, very conscious acts uh, coming from industry that possibly the fossil fuel industry saying, oh, well, they, they kill birds, they're noisy, they cause cancer, and your real estate, you know, uh, will go down if you have. They've actually proven your real estate doesn't go down when the wind turbines come into your neighborhood. But those messages were taken by somebody else who doesn't want that to, t to catch on. And, uh, and, and again, now we're having a resistance on wind turbines. It, 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 I'll just, it's absolutely a, a uniting of individual and collective action. There is, that it, that's how it has to work. And, and when you see the change station that is at the end of the show, there are all of these organizations that we are intimately involved with, that we support, like Ecojustice and Environmental Defense and Swim, Drink, Fish or Waterkeeper, the Stock Community Food Center, those are just here, who are doing incredibly important work every day. So we should all support them. You know, the, the, the fact that Nestle, that we don't have a, a plastic bottle uh, tax in this, is, in this province, Ontario and Manitoba are the only two provinces that don't have that. So when you buy a bottle of Nestle water, please don't ever buy Nestle water particularly. Um, they, and they're, they're, they're the ones, Nestle, Coke, Pepsi, they're, they're lobbying against it because they don't want 10 cents extra put on the cost of a bottle. But the, the, what, what happens, which we know from environmental defense because they've done these studies, is that fully 80% toggles almost immediately. 80% of bottles go into landfill then 80% become recycled as soon as there is a deposit. So why aren't we doing that? We're not doing that because of the lobby of corporations and because they don't want us to think when we buy a bottle of water that it's wrong to use single-use plastic. So we have to educate ourselves and we have to stop doing that. And then we have to put pressure on these corporations to not be able, it, it, as soon as we boycott them, they'll change. So it, it, it's the uniting of those things and supporting the groups that are working every day. And I think uh, that's the way forward. If we didn't have hope, we, we wouldn't do this work. We are doing this work because we believe that change is possible. So nobody used plastic bottles anymore. <laughs> we have time for a few more. Um, hi, thank you for your work. I actually first saw uh, your 2007 movie, and since then it's kind of affected the way I uh, consume the products in my world, and I've seen the effect through uh, my family members and my friends, and they sort of try to vote with their dollar now and uh, try and consume less. Um, so I guess my question, uh, so thank you for, the, for your work. My question kind of ties in with the previous one. Have you had the opportunity to get any feedback on your work from either the CEOs or some of these corporations or world leaders, and what's their take on what you're showing? 
That's a great question, and thank you for it. Um, this one, I think, is, is maybe too fresh uh, to be able to have um, more than a shallow data pool, but um, certainly one of the things that um, manufactured landscapes and certainly Ed's photographs for three decades, um, I think, is a testament to the space that they occupy. The fact that they would hang in the corporate head offices of the mines where he would go and film or the big industrial complexes, that's often you know, his, his giving back and, and part of the deal of, hey, I'll let you in and I'm gonna make these beautiful photographs of, you, of your mine. They would also hang in the offices of the environmental activist groups who were opposing those. And, and I always thought that's, a, that's an amazing testament to our, our kind of philosophy of trying to be non-didactic and not fall into those established rants where people just um, say, oh, I know where I stand on that, and they turn off and they don't think, and then it doesn't become a dialogue. This one, I don't know. Maybe we've been doing it for long enough that you know we're, we're going to be more outed in terms of our, our, our agenda. Um, uh, but, but, but I hope not. I, I, I hope that there's, there's a division and that the work is, is meant to be non-prescriptive in a way, um, uh, but still, ironically, um, be transformative and that, and that everyone will have an individual reaction to um, it would, would be my best aspiration for, I, I for the work. I will just say that Marcus, who works in Ed's office, sorry, this is, when those streetcars that Ed was talking about, because there's the quote is, if we destroy nature, we destroy ourselves, Edward Bertinsky, and Mark was like, well, the cat's out of the back. Ed said, you know, and it was just, no, we can't deny it now, it's the quotes on the streetcar. And we did take the Prime Minister through the exhibition in Ottawa with the Environment Minister and a whole group of kids and the and, and Justin Trudeau talked about his price on pollution, which we obviously, who could not support, we all support that very much. Um, and it was a big moment, actually, to engage with government. And it just becomes, uh, I think our engagement with the corporations is more along the lines of supporting eco-justice and environmental defense and those kind of groups that are actually holding their feet to the fire. And I also found that um, like when I travel the world and do lectures and, and you know, I go to a place that I'd never been before, um, you know, and, and I didn't know if there would be an audience there or not. And, and by and large, when I do poll the audience, they, they know the work that I'm doing through the films more than even through the books or the exhibitions. Films have a way to enter and permeate into culture in a much more profound way once they're kind of released out into the world. And what I'm always encouraged is that almost at the end of every talk, someone will come to me and say, you know, I show that film to my students every year. It hasn't lost its power. And we sit down at the end of it and we talk about what we saw and we talk about what it means. And I think that that, you know, that, then that, that warms my heart because that's exactly how we as artists believe that using as a point of departure and allowing all kinds of different views to begin to parse what it is that you just saw and what does it mean and what's my role in it, what's our role in it, what's the corporation's role in it, what's the government's role in it. And once you start asking those questions, you are now beginning to, to, to move towards real change. And, and that, again, raising of consciousness is the beginning of change, which I think is what's on the t-shirt. But that is really the key thing that we, because as artists, we don't have political power, but we have the power of stories and narratives and the visual power of the lens. And, and people relate 
to images of our world in a way that we were all very adept at understanding what those images are about. And, and you can own them more and actually, you know, and tell uh, a narrative about who we are as a collective on the, and the impact we're having, you know, through these mediums, which I think are well suited to tell that story. We have time for about two more questions. Thank you. Um, I find myself thinking of Orson Welles' description of wandering up dark stairs and knocking on doorways for funding. I was wondering how you were able to find funding for these projects, or how hard or difficult, easy, whatever. A lot of dark corridors. <laughs> easy is not the way to describe it. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of the very boring side of, of the work, and we're lucky in Canada that there is um, an ecosystem. It's, it's small on the documentary side, um, and Jen and I have been doing it for long enough that um, some of those doors open when you knock on them, and it starts with uh, Bell. It's a, it's a TV license, and there's kind of a, a bunch of, th of hoops you jump through. Um, uh, so we were lucky to be able to do that, and uh, I mean it's it's been a huge project, and we've had we've had a lot of uh, a lot of support. Um, we have to be very careful that uh, you know we're not we don't end up by shilling for somebody we don't want to. Um, uh, but it's it's usually on the corporate side, like Telus has been a big a big supporter. They tend to be more more neutral, and it's through things like their health funds and environment funds and and things like that. Um, so it's. It's a long answer, and it's it's not easy. But I'm, I'm very aware uh, that we're privileged to be able to do this work, and I treat it as a very big responsibility too. Time for one more. Yes, this lady over here. Um, hi. Okay. So I appreciate what you said uh, a few minutes ago, Nick, about the work uh, not being prescriptive, which I think has been echoed by Jen and Ed, um, both of you as well. But I'm just wondering about um, the only sort of scene that I could see in the, in the film, um, or the scenes, uh, rather, where you see individuals who are acting responsibly for the Anthropocene and con confronting the Anthropocene um, and the harms that it does. Um, and I'm referring to uh, the scenes in Kenya with the destroying of the ivory. Um, so I'm just wondering why you selected that particular example as um, humans responding to the Anthropocene in a sort of proactive way um, and what we can maybe learn from that example as well. Well, the you know, when you see that in the film, and certainly in the exhibition, it is a huge part as you walk through at the end, and there's something incredibly apocalyptic about that um, imagery, um, and tragic, because we're looking at the deaths of thousands and thousands of elephants, really. Um, on the other hand, it is, it's an incredibly hopeful act, um, uh, that burn. That burn is the big, was the biggest burn of ivory that has ever taken place in the world in 2016 in Nairobi National Park. Um, there were how many tons? Hundred? How many tons of ivory? Over 100. Over 100 tons of ivory and some rhino horn. And they had, Kenya had been stockpiling the, these, these tusks for years and years and years. And it was an incredibly onerous burden to store them because people are trying to steal them all the time. So they had to have incredible security. It was very fraught. 
And their decision to do this was sort of outstandingly brave because they could have used that revenue. It was worth many, many millions of dollars. Um, they could have argued that they would use that revenue to do something against poaching, but their argument was that there should be no market for ivory, period. Period. Nothing. No, you know, before the ban, we can trade. There's no legal trade. There is no legal trade in ivory. Ivory belongs to elephants. And, and I think that because of that um, moment, and this woman, Winnie Carew, who kind of bookends a film, she was so powerful. She was the one who literally recorded and marked every single tusk that was in that burn and recorded it. She said, I knew the elephants um, from some of these tusks when I saw them. I knew those elephants. I personally interacted with those elephants in my work. Um, and, and she said she was so happy when that burn was over and that there was no possibility that any of that ivory could be used you know, to make some dumb chachka that's going to sit on somebody's mantelpiece or, you know, w w whatever. That, that, that the, what did she say? I could not prevent these animals from dying, but I can prevent them from being desecrated further. And we know that elephants will become extinct if there is not a worldwide ban on ivory. And sort of in response to the burn, both the United States and China um, initiated bans, which they then kind of um, weakened or diluted by, by allowing trophies and allowing medicinal uh, uh, use to be imported. So we're, we're, they're still fighting, um, but it, it, it for us was that it was an ambiguous moment, it was a powerful moment, um, but it was a hopeful moment and that's why it's such a strong part of both the show and the film. On that note, please give a huge round of applause. <laughs>